This week we're in. Um, we're going to hopefully finish John chapter five. We'll see how we go. We got up to verse twenty last week, and before I summarize it, I thought we'd just read from verse fifteen on to the end. So it's John chapter five, and we're going to read um, verse fifteen to the end. And uh, just to get the context, and I'll quickly summarize what we did last week, and then we'll um, we'll keep going. So, Father, I thank you for. Lord, your your precious word, and we thank you for the truth, and we thank you for the truth claims that we find in chapter 5 about the deity of Jesus Christ, and we just uh, thank you for uh, the way you've um, given us this opportunity to learn more about you. Teach us about how we can spend more time in your presence and, and less time doing our own thing, or I should say more time experiencing your presence and less time um, doing things on our own, and uh, to put our relationship with the Father as being the most important thing in our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, uh, verse 15 of John chapter 5. The man departed and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. So the first part of the story was Jesus healing this guy who has been lame for 38 years. Uh, For this reason the Jews persecuted Jesus and sought to kill him because he had done these things on the Sabbath. That was the problem. But Jesus answered them, My father has been working until now, and I have been working. Therefore the Jews sought all the more to kill him, because he not only broke the Sabbath, but also said that God was his father, making himself equal with God. Then Jesus answered and said to them, Most assuredly I say to you, the son can do nothing of himself, but what he sees the Father do. For whatever he does, the Son also does in like manner. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself does, and he will show him greater works than these, that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives life to them, even so the Son gives life to whom he will. For the Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son, that all should honour the Son just as they honour the Father. He who does not honour the Son does not honour the Father who sent him. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Most assuredly, I say to you, the hour is coming, and now is, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself, and has given him authority to execute judgment also, because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice. And come forth, those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. I can of myself do nothing. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is righteous, because I do not seek my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. If I bear witness of myself, my witness is not true. There is another who bears witness of me, and I know that the witness which he witnesses of me is true. You have sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Yet I do not receive testimony from man, but I say these things that you may be saved. Verse 
He was the burning and shining lamp, and you were willing for a time to rejoice in his light. But I have a greater witness than John's, for the works which the Father has given me to finish, the very works that I do, bear witness of me, that the Father has sent me. And the Father himself, who sent me, has testified of me. You have neither heard his voice at any time, nor seen his form, but you do not have his word abiding in you, because whom he sent, him you do not believe. You search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and these are they which testify of me. But you are not willing to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive honour from men, but I know you, that you do not have the love of God in you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, him you will receive. How can you believe who receive honour from one another, and do not seek the honour that comes from the only God? Do not think that I shall accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, in whom you trust. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? So last week we went through the first 20 verses of John chapter 5. And um, the way I'm going through this is I'm picking out as we go um, eight points that encourage us to draw near to the Father, that give us practical ways of drawing near to the Father. And in between them, I'll be going through the actual text as well. So just kind of working our way through as, as normal, but focusing on uh, one of the focuses will be Jesus' relationship to the Father, because it is pretty special what Jesus reveals to us about his relationship with the Father. And I think it's very helpful for us. So last week, quick revision, Jesus comes along to the Pool of Bethesda, it's the, the, the five porches, the two pools, and asks a random guy a very unusual question, do you want to be made well? So there's all these lame, crippled, sick people, and he says one person to one person, do you want to be made well? Now we concluded last week that some sick or spiritually dead people as the analogy goes, um, don't actually want to be made well. So in the spiritual sense. Why? Well, for the non-Christian, they want to remain in their sin. They are content with life as it is and are not willing to give up their life of sin. And why? Because men love darkness rather than light. John three seventeen to 18 says, He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation, that the light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light, and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who does the truth comes to the light, that his deeds may be clearly seen, that they have been done in God. So, that's that's for the unbeliever. But what about us as Christians? Can we apply that principle to us? At the moment of salvation, we are saved the penalty of sin. That's our justification. That's in the past. That's done and dusted. We're innocent before God. While we're on this earth, we are being saved from the power of sin. That's called sanctification. 
And then when we die or we're raptured, depending what comes first, we are saved from the presence of sin, which is our glorified body. Because in our glorified body, you won't have a sinful nature. Looking forward to that. So our justification is already complete. We're declared innocent. We have right relationship with the Father. And our glorified body is something that we're all longing and hoping for. Get rid of these old ones. Get rid of the sinful nature. Amen. But the present and ongoing process of sanctification can be very painful. As Christians, we may not be willing to experience being saved from the power of sin. We tend to hang on to the old life or parts of it because our affections or love for the things of this world are stronger than our affections or love for God. Does that make sense? So we don't give up everything straight away because our love for the Lord grows as we mature and as we love the Lord more, we start to love the things of the world less. And that's why we give them up. So Jesus comes to us each day and asks, do you want to be made well? For example, do I want to overcome the sin which is holding me down, things that are holding me in bondage? Am I willing to give up my own desires, my human wisdom and ambitions and humble myself and seek the Lord for the strength to raise my children and love my spouse as unto the Lord, loving them unconditionally with an agape love, something that I can't do on my own strength? Am I willing to use my time in the most efficient way, spending quality time with the Lord each day and with those I love and be organized to accomplish God's will for my life instead of wasting time on things that have no eternal value? The Father is always working. Will I join him in his work and be able to say like Jesus said, and I have been working? Or will I do things my own way, in my own strength, and ultimately wasting my time and sacrificing my eternal reward? And that's basically what happens in our lives. Sometimes we're working with the Father and sometimes we're doing our own thing. Now God's work always gets done. This is a good thing. God is sovereign. His purposes always stand and his will is always done. So our bad decisions don't affect the outcome. God already knows the outcome. He's already planned it. He's, he already knows how things are going to work out. But our disobedience or my disobedience does cause unnecessary pain both to me and to those around me. And I do miss out on the blessings of walking in the Spirit, of enjoying fellowship with God, of abiding in His love, and of experiencing the presence of God. And uh, one of the verses that um, helps me to think of this kind of dichotomy between walking in the presence of God and not is Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 13. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewn themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. So living waters, the Holy Spirit. We're walk, walking in the power of the Holy Spirit or we're trying to find our satisfaction, our contentment in things which can't, which are broken, which hold no water. They're dry. They don't, they don't satisfy us. So I believe that we need to see anything that keeps us from full obedience. I'm applying the, the man who was healed, right, to us as Christians. Um, I'm applying that. So if there's anything that keeps us from full obedience, from full intimacy with God, See it as a sickness, as a disease, as a lameness, something that needs to be taken away, something that needs to be gotten rid of or healed. Like the lame man was healed and he was able to walk physically. We need to be able to walk spiritually. So sometimes these things are obvious sins, 
like you know uh, addictions and 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 lying and lust and things like that. Sometimes they're good things that are not God's will for our lives. They can be like sport and clubs and hobbies and things like that. And sometimes they are things that God wants for us, but we make them more important than Him, like ministry, work, money, family, etc. So whatever the case, they are all broken systems, empty God's power and presence in my life. If we're not, um, if we're not walking, working with God in those things. So another example. I know it's the Father's will, the Father's work, or to work through me. It's the Father's work to love my wife. But will I give up the things that I want to do and the things that I want to have and humbly seek God's will and power so that I can love my wife the way he wants me to? Will I join God in his work in loving my wife or will I do my own thing and love her the way I think she should be loved? Which is obviously going to be a lesser love. So Jesus never forces us to follow him, but he does lovingly discipline us. He convicts us. And it's his kindness that leads us to repentance. Uh, Romans 2.4 Don't you see how wonderfully kind, tolerant, and patient God is with you? Does this mean nothing to you? Can't you see that his kindness is intended to turn you from your sin? So this is written in the context of winning the unsaved or turning the unsaved from their sin. But we can apply it to ourselves as well as Christians. How can we continue to sin knowing that we are grieving the Holy Spirit, knowing that God loves us and has given so much for us? Eventually the conviction that the Holy Spirit brings will cause me to turn away from my sin, from my independence, doing my own thing in specific areas of my life, And I start to understand that everything I do affects the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. With every choice I make, I either bless God or I grieve God. And this is my point here. Psalm 69, 20 and 21. I was really thinking about this during the week. And I think, well, how how does what I do affect God? And I was thinking about it. Is there anything in Scripture that gives us any hint about that? And I thought of this verse. Psalm 69, 20 and 21. It's a messianic um, psalm, and I've I've got the two verses there, so you can see the context of it that it is messianic. But so I'll just read it. It's reproach has broken my heart, and I am full of heaviness. I looked for someone to take pity, but there was none, and for comforters, but I found none. They also gave me gall for my food, and for my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. And we know that last verse was fulfilled when Jesus died on the cross, but I believe verse twenty was as well. So. Reproach has broken my heart, and I am full of heaviness. Now, so we we read that verse in Ephesians 4.30, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit by whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. You wonder, what does it mean to grieve someone? Well, if we think about what Jesus experienced on the cross, he had a broken heart and was full of heaviness. So when you're grieved by someone, how do you feel? I think this is a good description. You've got a broken heart and you're full of heaviness. When someone has hurt you, that's how you feel. So when we grieve the Holy Spirit, when we choose not to abide in our love relationship with the Lord, that's how we affect Him. When we start to understand that every decision we make, good or bad, affects the Lord, we grieve Him or we bless Him, then we start to realize that, you know what? I really need to start living my life more for him and less for myself. It's a logical thing to do. It makes sense. And it's the way that God has made us. It's called gratitude, gratefulness. 
It's called being thankful and having a thankful heart. So think of every choice you make as being either thankful to God for his great love toward us or as despising his goodness toward us, which is being ungrateful or unthankful. And I've got Romans 12 verse 1 from the Amplified up on the screen. It says, I appeal to you, therefore, brethren, and beg of you in view of all the mercies of God to make a decisive dedication of your bodies, presenting all your members and faculties as a living sacrifice, holy, devoted, consecrated, and well-pleasing to God, which is your reasonable, rational, intelligent, and you could put in there logical as well, service and spiritual worship. And then the same verse from the New Living says, And so, dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to give your bodies to God because of all he has done for you. Let them be a living and holy sacrifice, the kind he will find acceptable. And the key phrase is the last one. This is truly the way to worship him. Because of all he has done for you. So it's out of gratitude. So if sinning breaks God's heart, then how does he feel when we obey? So I've talked about the negative. What about the positive? Well, at Jesus' baptism and at the transfiguration, the Father said of Jesus, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And at the transfiguration, he adds, Hear him. So well pleased. And I thought, what does that mean? Does it mean like, you know, I'm a teacher grading some maths tests, and I think, oh yeah, they passed, tick, I'm pleased with that, I can give them an A. No, it's more than that. Um, The well pleased in the Greek, uh, one of the definitions is, to be pleased with something or someone with the implication of resulting pleasure. To be pleased with, to take pleasure in. So it's not like the teacher grading a test. Yeah, I'm pleased with that mark. That guy gets an A or that girl gets an A. No, our relationship with God brings him genuine personal pleasure and joy. So yes, when we are obedient and dependent on the Lord, we bring joy and pleasure to his heart. And you think about what it says in Hebrews, for the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross. What joy? Well, it was me. It was you. We were on his mind. He was looking forward to the friendship and the love relationship with us that his death on the cross would make possible. Now, another way of looking at this, marriage is a picture of our relationship with God. We are the bride of Christ. Christ is the bridegroom. And... I don't know what it's like for you guys, but have you noticed that emotions in marriage are seldom neutral? They're either very pleasurable or very painful. Okay? When a husband and wife are walking in spiritual, emotional, and physical unity, there is much pleasure. When there is disunity, there is much pain. So this is how I see my life affecting God. I'm in a marriage relationship with God. Okay, I'm going to attend the the wedding feast and I'm going to be the bride, part of the bride. So as for every Christian. So when I walk with him in unity and submission to him, I bring him much pleasure. And not only him, but myself, right? When I choose to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, so to speak, and act independently of and in rebellion against God, then I bring him much pain. It's like a, a fight in a marriage. So therefore, summing all this up, when we sin, we break God's heart, we grieve him, we hurt him, we cause him pain. However, when we obey, depend on, and seek him, we not only please the Father, but also bring much pleasure to him. So Jesus said in John 8.29, And he who sent me is with me. 
The Father has not left me alone, for I always do those things that please Him. So that's what I want for us. We want our motto in life to be to always do those things that please the Father. Why? Because we want to bless Him. Why do we want to bless Him? Because we're thankful for all that He's already done for us. So why did I spend so long on that? Well, I'm talking about Jesus' relationship to the Father. And I wanted to help you see that Jesus and the Father, uh, they're a blessing to each other. Jesus, when he obeyed, he was a blessing to the Father. I am well pleased. I get so much pleasure from my relationship with my son, Jesus. So I want to help us to focus on our relationship with the Father. And I'm going to go through eight practical insights into Christ's relationship with the Father that will help us to remain close and deepen our relationship with the Father and so bringing him much pleasure and us. So Jesus, for Jesus, his love relationship with the Father was the all-consuming passion in his life. And that's what I want for us as well. So we covered the first three of these points last week, so I'm just going to quickly revise them. The first is in John 5.17. It says, My Father has been working until now, and I have been working. So Jesus is a reflection of the Father. So the question is for me, am I a reflection of the Father? Do I join him in his work, or am I doing my own thing? And one of the verses we looked at last week was Second Corinthians six one. It says, "We then, as workers together with him, so we're working with him. We are God's fellow workers." And now, often this is not so much concerned with what we do, but how we do it. Many of the works that Jesus did were acts of kindness, healing, feeding, freeing from demons, raising the dead. And we can ask ourselves, are the fruits of the Spirit on display in my life? Do I reflect God's love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control in the way I talk to people, in the way I treat people? Do I have an attitude of gratitude for all that God has done for me? Am I a helpful and compassionate person? Am I generous towards others? Do I reflect the love of the Father in my relationships with other people? So that's the the, uh, first one. Jesus is a reflection of the Father. And the second is um, John 5.19. Then Jesus answered and said to him, Most assuredly I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself, but what he sees the Father do. So Jesus maintained contact with the Father. He's, He's always seeing what the Father did. He's always looking to the Father for guidance and direction. And Jesus, as you know, spent a lot of time in prayer with the Father. And so for us, we need to be reading the word prayerfully and praying according to the word of God. So a picture of, to help explain this. Imagine you are playing football on a football field. And instead of watching the game and keeping an eye on what your teammates and the opposition are doing, you've got your eye on the hot dog stand and you're thinking about, am I going to get barbecue sauce or tomato sauce on my hot dog after the game? Because I'm feeling hungry now. And meanwhile, you know, your teammates are calling out, come on, come on, you know, and you're standing there looking at the hot dog stand. You're wearing your, your jersey, you, you, you know, you, 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 with your number on and all that kind of stuff. You're, you're on the team, you're on the field, the game's in play, but you're out of the touch. <laughs> you're not looking, you're not seeing, okay? You're out of touch with the game. And so you're not really useful. So... Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, it says um, in the New Living, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a huge crowd of witnesses to the life of faith, 
Let us strip off every weight that slows us down, especially the sin that so easily trips us up, and let us run with endurance the race God has set before us. Verse 2, we do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus. So what I wanted to bring out here was that start of verse 2, we do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus. So how do we uh, live a life that's free from sin, free from the weights that slow us down? We keep our eyes on Jesus, just like Jesus. He's always doing what he sees the Father doing. We can't do what the Father wants us to do unless we're seeing what he's doing, unless we're in contact with him. Now the third one is found in um, second part of 19 and 20. For whatever he does, the Father does, the Son also does in like manner. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself does, and he will show him greater works than these, that you may marvel. So the key phrase here is, for the Father loves the Son. So the third point in our relationship with the Father is Jesus finds his security in the Father. So our greatest need, humanly speaking, is to find love and acceptance. And where do we find that? We find it in the Father, in our relationship with the Father. Ephesians 1, 4-6 says, Even before he made the world, God loved us and chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in his eyes. God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. This is what he wanted to do, and it gave him great pleasure. Notice that again, great pleasure. Our relationship with God brings him great pleasure. So we praise God for the glorious grace he has poured out on us who belong to his dear son. So we are chosen, we are loved, and we belong. If everybody could recognize that and accept that and realize that fully, then we wouldn't be seeking acceptance anywhere else. We're chosen, we are loved, and we belong. It would be so good if we could do that and, and not f- try and find our security in what my, my spouse, my friends, my family, the crowds, uh, my co-workers or social media think of me, but only what the Father thinks of me. So now we um, get into the rest of the passage which we haven't studied yet. So verse 21. For as the Father raises the dead and gives life to them, even so the Son gives life to whom he will. For the Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son, that we should honor the Son just as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and should not come into judgment, but has passed from death into life. Most assuredly, I say to you, the hour is coming and now is, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself. So here the concept is that Jesus is in harmony with the Father. As the Father raises the dead, so I too raise the dead. Just as the Father receives honor, so must I. And I thought of... um, 
Matthew chapter 10, verses 5 to 15, as uh, an example of walking in harmony with the Lord. This is when Jesus sends out the 12 disciples in pairs to go through um, various towns. So I'm just going to read a little bit from Matthew chapter 10, just some selected verses. Verse 5 says, These 12 Jesus sent out and commanded them, saying, Do not go into the way of the Gentiles, and do not enter a city of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So, the disciples were in harmony with the physical location and the particular people that the Father was working with. The Father was working in a particular area with particular people. He wanted them to go there. And verse 7 says, And as you go, preach, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. So they were in harmony with the message the Father was sharing. Heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out demons, freely you have received, freely give. And they are in harmony with the method of outreach used by the Father. Now that's going to change according to how God wants to work, but back then that's how it was. Provide neither gold nor silver nor copper in your money belts, nor bag for your journey, nor two tunics, nor sandals, nor staff, for a worker is worthy of his food. So they were in harmony with the Father's method of provision. And whoever will not receive you nor hear your words when you depart from that house or city, shake off the dust from your feet. Assuredly, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. Now, just as those who don't honor the Son don't honor the Father, those who don't honor or receive us, as we live as ambassadors of Christ, also are not honoring the Father. If you go to um, seven churches, I haven't got this in my notes, but uh, Jesus says to one of the churches there, I will cause those who are a synagogue of Satan to bow down before you and to recognize that you are mine or that I love you. It goes something like that. So God is, if we honor the Father, we too will be honored. Not with the same honor that the Son gets, but we will be honored for our obedience and for our relationship with him. Now before we um, go on to the next um, point about uh, our relationship with the Father, there's statements here that demonstrate the deity of Jesus Christ. The first one is, even so the Son gives life to whom he will. So the Son has the same power as the Father, including the power to raise the dead. So that's one of the evidences or the proof for his deity. Another one is this next phrase, but has committed all judgment to the Son. The Son has the same authority as the Father, including the authority to judge all. Now, only God is the judge. So, in Jesus being given the authority to judge is the demonstration that he is God. And then the next one, that all should honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Now, this is the further claim to deity. If the Son was not God, if Jesus was not God, then it would be wrong to honor the Son just as they honor the Father, meaning with the same amount of honor as what they honor the Father with. So we receive honor, but it's a lesser kind. It's not the same kind. It's not just as. It also means that if we don't honor the Son, we're not really honoring the Father either. And um, A.T. Robinson says, Jesus claims the same right to worship from men that the Father has. That's the honor. When we worship, we give him honor. And about the cults, there are many groups that pretend to honor God, but they dishonor Jesus, who is the perfect revelation of God the Father. 
In this they demonstrate that they do not honour God the Father at all. So this is a good passage to use when you're talking to Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons and, and other people who, other cults, who do not um, believe that Jesus is God. Uh, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life. So um, Guzik says about this phrase, Jesus lifts himself far above the level of any mere man. None of us can say, hear my word and have everlasting life. <laughs> All right? That's, it's only Jesus can say that. Only God can say that. Either he's a babbling and insane man, or he is speaking the words of God himself. He is God. And the last one that, before we go on, the last phrase which speaks of his deity is life in himself. Now, we receive our life from the Lord. We don't have life in ourselves. We are dependent on the Lord for our life. Our breath, our very breath is from him, but not for Jesus. He has his life in himself. So as I said, our life is derived from our parents and the fragile environment around us. But Jesus claimed that his life was derived from no one. It is inherent and uncreated. Now here's a uh, technical word for you. I don't usually use technical words. But theologians call this quality of self-existence a seity and recognize that God alone possesses it. He's self-existent. That's what this is talking about. Verse 27. The Father has given him authority to execute judgment also because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. So why does the Father let Jesus do the judging? Because Jesus walked in the same place as we walk. He was tempted in all points like you and me. Hebrews 4.15 And so Jesus is saying, I'm in harmony with the Father. I do the same things the Father does, including judging. Now you know we're not Jesus, but we will be judging. Do you know we'll be judging angels? So we, in a lesser way, will also have the same privilege. And then those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. Now that's a scary thought. So the evil will be resurrected. They'll have their own resurrection. And this will happen at the great white throne judgment. So those who trust Jesus for salvation will receive resurrection bodies to enjoy the glories of heaven. But those who reject him will get resurrection bodies to endure the terrors of hell. And Daniel 12, 2 um, also says the same thing. It says, And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Now verse 30, John chapter 5, I can of myself do nothing. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is righteous, because I do not seek my own will but the will of the Father who sent me. So this is our fifth point when it comes to a strong relationship with the Father. I do not seek my own will. Jesus had no program, no agenda, no vision, other than to do the Father's will. So we need to challenge ourselves each day to say, you know what, I don't want to have any other agenda, any other desires, any other things on my calendar, other than what the Father wants me to do. Because we tend to fill our days up with things which uh, sometimes are not in his 
plan for us. We just make ourselves more busy than we need to be. So we should be saying, my only desire is to simply do the will of the Father. Not to make it easier on myself or better for my family. Not to find more fulfillment in what I do personally or to establish myself financially. I just want to do the Father's will by the power of the Spirit within me. Now regarding submission to the Father, a commentator said, uh, Jesus, God the Son, does nothing independently. He is fully submitted to the Father's will. But this submission comes by choice, not by coercion or by an inferior nature. So Jesus' submission to the Father is fully his own choice. And we must make that choice as well to be submitted to the Father's will. We need to be praying like Jesus did, not my will, but yours be done. And Jesus also said, my judgment is righteous. And this is another reason that uh, Jesus is qualified as a righteous judge, because his power is in submission. I can of myself do nothing as I hear I judge. He's in submission to the Father even when he's judging. All right, verse 31. If I bear witness of myself, my witness is not true. So what does this mean? This is a bit confusing. If I bear witness of myself, my witness is not true. Does that mean that Jesus is lying? <laughs> no. What it means is that you can't uh, establish truth regarding yourself by your own testimony. In Deuteronomy 9.15, it says, By the mouth of two or three witnesses, the matter shall be established. You need to have someone apart from you um, give testimony concerning you. So if you did something like, well, you did or didn't do something like, you know, you accused of murder, then you, your testimony is not really valid. You know, you can't say, oh, I was over here um, at, at a friend's place. And But what they'll do is they'll go to their friend and say, Were, was David with him, but with you? And they'll, if my alibi checks out, then, you know, I, I get off because someone has been a witness for me. I can't use my own witness. And that's the same. So this is a legal sense. And so what Jesus is going to do is call forth other witnesses that he is God. Okay? So he's saying that, yeah, you're right. I, can't, I sh- shouldn't be a witness of myself. My witness is not valid legally. But there are other witnesses of me. And they are, and we'll go through them as the verses go through. John the Baptist his works, the Father, and the Scriptures. So there's four witnesses of the deity of Jesus here, of who he is. But these enemies of Jesus, the the Jewish leaders, will reject these witnesses and their testimony. So the first witness comes up to the stand. Verse 32, There is another who bears witness of me, and I know that the witness which he witnesses of me is true. You have sent to John, and he is born witness to the truth. So John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And he also says other things about Jesus. And you can read those in um, the early chapters of John. But what does Jesus say about this? Yet I do not receive the testimony from man, but I say these things that you may be saved. So, look, John said this, but I'm still not relying on that. It's good but I'm still not relying on that. But I'm saying saying this for your benefit. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing for a time to rejoice in his light. Because he goes on to the next witness, which is his works. But I have a greater witness than John's, 
for the works which the Father has given me to finish, the very works that I do, bear witness of me, that the Father has sent me. So, as I was saying before, the majority of the miraculous works of Jesus were simple acts of compassion and mercy, done for simple, needy people. And in this, these works bear witness to the heart of God. The Jews looked for a miraculous Messiah, but they did not look for one who would express his miraculous power in simple acts of compassion and mercy. They wanted a Messiah to use his miraculous power to bring political and military deliverance to Israel. They want to be free from the Romans. And so because Jesus' agenda didn't fit with theirs, they, he didn't act in the way they thought he should. They rejected the witness of Jesus' works. Now Jesus goes on to probably the most important witness, which is the witness of the Father. Verse 37, And the Father himself who sent me has testified of me. You have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form, but you do not have his word abiding in you, because whom he sent, him you do not believe. This brings us to our sixth point of our uh, relationship to the Father. I'm sorry for jumping to and fro between the deity of Christ and um, our relationship with the Father. It's just the way the passage flows. So, um, validation from the Father. My validation comes not from myself. John the Baptist told you I am the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, John one twenty nine. And if that's not good enough for you, look at the works that I'm doing, the miracles happening. Yet if yet even they aren't the issue. They aren't the big witness. For ultimately, the validation for what I do comes from the Father himself. Now, how did the Father validate the Son? He said in Matthew 3.17, for example, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And there's also Old Testament prophecies regarding Jesus, which we don't have time to read now. But this is the key for us. Jesus' validation didn't come from John the Baptist, other people. It didn't come from his own works, his own accomplishments. It came directly from the Father. So our validation should not come from our own accomplishments. Or oh, look at me, I must be pretty good because I've achieved all these things. Or from others patting me on the back. <laughs> you know, well done, Dave, you did a great job. No, it's <laughs> someone said you'll always be one pat shy of satisfaction. <laughs> you never get enough pats on the back to be fully satisfied. So true validation comes when you hear the voice of the Father in your heart saying, well done, good and faithful servant. I'm pleased with you. You have brought me much pleasure. That's the only validation that brings security, satisfaction and stability. It's the only validation that makes our lives attractive, fruitful and effective. Verse 39, you search the scriptures for in them you think you have eternal life and in these are they which testify of me. Now, the Greek word translated search is ereuneo, which means to track the scent. Like a lion or a bloodhound, they, they track the scent. They go along and chase the rabbit or chase the deer, whatever they're chasing. And this is the way to study scripture. I follow the scent of the blood. Sniff out the scarlet thread of the cross. Look for Jesus. Have you heard that before? Follow the scarlet thread? You can follow that through the Old Testament too. Verse 40, but you are not willing to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive honor from men, but I know you that 
you do not have the love of God in you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. This is important for us too, especially when it comes to our relationship with the Father. You study the scripture doctrinally, Jesus said, but you've missed the point entirely because you've missed me. It's not about knowledge, it's about relationship. It's not about how much you know about Jesus, but rather how much you love Jesus. You know, you don't have to be a Christian to study the Bible. A non-Christian, many non-Christians have made translations of the Bible. They probably know the doctrines of the Bible better than we do. To a degree, because some of it is spiritually discerned. But, you know, they can learn the main doctrines, they can learn the archaeology, uh, prophecy, history, etc. But their life won't change if they're rejecting Jesus. They are still blind. They're still spiritually blind. And we can be blind too sometimes as we read the Bible because we're seeking knowledge rather than relationship. Or as someone said, we can know the Bible without having his word live in us. And the next part of verse 43 says, If another comes in his own name, him you will receive. This is, a, I believe, a verse referring to the Antichrist, the peacemaker, the Middle East problem solver, the Antichrist who will come in his own name and will be embraced by the world, including the Jewish nation. So any time a person rejects Jesus, it leaves them open to tremendous deception. And verse 44, How can you believe who receive honor for one another and do not seek the honor that comes from the only God? So the next point is Jesus was only concerned about pleasing the Father. Jesus only cared about the honor that came from the Father, not the honor that comes from men. He was a God-pleaser, not a man-pleaser. And that's why he was free to fulfill the Father's will. Now what did Solomon say about the fear of men? you remember what he said in the Proverbs? I'll I'll, I'll, um, summarize it for you. Solomon was right when he said, The fear of man will trip you up, but the fear of God is a beginning of wisdom. And you find that in uh, Proverbs 29, 25 and chapter 9, verse 10. So paraphrase, The fear of man will trip you up, but the fear of God is a beginning of wisdom. Jesus could say, Father, I finished the work you gave me to do, and I've glorified you. John 17, 4. Why? Because he sought the honor from God rather than from men. And a verse, a couple of verses here. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 6 to 8. Not with eye service as man pleases, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, with good will doing service as to the Lord, and not to men, knowing that whatever good anyone does, he will receive the same from the Lord. And then there's um, Colossians chapter 3, verses 22 to 24 from the Amplified Version. It says, verse 22, Servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not only when their eyes are on you as pleasers of men, but in simplicity of purpose, with all your heart, because of your reverence for the Lord and as a sincere expression of your devotion to Him. Whatever may be your task, work at it heartily from the soul as something done for the Lord and not for men, knowing with all certainty that it is from the Lord and not from men that you will receive the inheritance which is your real reward. The one whom you are actually serving is the Lord Christ, the Messiah. I like the way it puts that at the end there. The one who you are actually serving 
is the Lord Christ, the Messiah. We look for our honor from him. We look to please him, him alone. And that, as we've been going through in our book study, it refers to the way we parent, the way we um, treat our spouse, all those things. Verse 45, Do not think that I shall accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, in whom you trust. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. So the, the last point is, I've titled it, Silence Before the Father, because Jesus says, Do not think that I shall accuse you to the Father. Jesus is not going to you know, rat on these people. He's not going to say, These people said this about me. He's just, you know what? Jesus is saying, all of the sacrifices and prophecies Moses wrote about in the Pentateuch were about me. Therefore, I don't need to accuse you before the Father. There's no need for me to defend myself or justify myself to you. The Word has condemned you already because you refuse to believe what Moses wrote. Now, how do we apply this as far as not accusing and not defending ourselves? Well, Romans twelve nineteen it says, Dear friends, never take revenge. Leave that to the righteous anger of God. For the scriptures say, I will take revenge. I will pay them back, says the Lord. Now, for me personally, it's so hard at times not to try to defend or justify myself. I think, how dare you say that about me? But think of Jesus on the cross. He was facing reviling and many false accusations. And Isaiah 53 verse 7 says, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Now, that verse reminded me of another verse, which is probably not your favorite verse. It's found in Romans chapter 8, verse 36. Now, we're not physically being crucified, but the Bible does make it clear that we will suffer for our faith. It is written in Romans 8.36, it says, As it is written, For your sake we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Isn't that a lovely verse? <laughs> what are you? Oh, I'm just um, a sheep for the slaughter. <laughs> That's me. Yeah, I gave my heart to Jesus and now I'm a sheep for the slaughter. What it's saying is, we, like Jesus, didn't open his mouth on the cross to defend himself. He trusted the Father to defend him, and so must we. Verse 47, But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? So this is the writings of Moses. So the the final testimony that Jesus gives is the word of God itself. And referring back to the writings of Moses. And uh, so I'll just um, summarize some of these. He's basically saying, If you believed Moses, you would believe me. So these right, the religious leaders rejected Jesus because they had already rejected God's word through Moses. And therefore it's Moses who's, who was accusing them because Moses wrote about Jesus and they won't receive the testimony of Jesus. So these people said, oh, we, we were all about Moses. We, we, we received all Moses, everything that he's written. But actually Jesus is saying, no, you haven't. You haven't received it. You haven't believed it. So what things is Jesus talking about? Well, here's just a couple, just to finish with. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your midst, from your brethren. Him you shall hear. That's Deuteronomy 18.15. What about Numbers 21.8-9, and matches with John chapter 3, about verse 15. Then the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent, and set it on a pole, and it shall be that everyone who is bitten 
when he looks at it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and put it on a pole. And so it was, if a serpent had bitten anyone, when he looked at the bronze serpent, he lived. And then there's um, Jesus as the rock that gave water to Israel in the wilderness. And you compare Numbers 20 verses 8 to 12 with 1 Corinthians 10.4. And then there's a ministry of Jesus was shown in almost every aspect when you look at the seven kinds of offering that God commanded Israel to bring. And you can find those seven kinds of offering in Leviticus chapters 1 through 7. And Jesus and his ministry were shown in the tabernacle and its service. Now we went through Exodus and there's lots of things that pictured Jesus when, when you're looking at the tab- tabernacle and, and everything that went on in there, the pieces of furniture, and etc. So, and one in particular, one really important thing is the, the word propitiation. It means mercy seat. It's tr- direct connection between Jesus in the Old Testament and Jesus in the New. It's, it's the price paid for our redemption. Uh, the law of the bond servant speaks of Jesus, and you can look at um, Exodus twenty-one five to six, and Psalm forty six to eight. So the bond servant, the apostles identify themselves as bond servants, servants for love, for life, as I say. And finally, no wonder Jesus could say, "Behold, I come in the scroll of the book; it is written of me." Psalm forty verse seven, and quoted in Hebrews, he could teach a Bible study. And he could begin at Moses and all the prophets, and he expounded to them in all the scriptures all the things concerning himself. He said, this is about me, this is about me, this is about me. As you're on the road to Emmaus, you know, this is all about me. So the Jewish leaders had rejected the witness of the scriptures concerning the Messiah. To finish today, I just wanted to go through the eight points. So... For us, we want to have uh, this attitude in my in our hearts. So the first one was, I want to be a reflection of the Father in every conversation, in every encounter with other people, and in my dealings with God. I'm going to maintain contact with the Father, depending on the Father, making no decisions without prayer and reference to the Word of God. I want to see what He's doing. My security is in the Father, I'm going to believe that he loves me because he proved it on Calvary, whether I feel it or not. Four, I'm going to be in harmony with the Father, just doing what I see him do, the way he wants me to do it. So the way he he tells me to do something, and I'm going to submit and do it the way he wants me to do it. I'm going to speak to the person he wants me to speak to, speak the words to that person he wants me to say to them. The fifth one, I'll be submitted to the Father, doing nothing on the basis of my own will. So his will be done. Six, my validation will come from only from the Father. I won't be fishing for compliments or looking for the approval of men. My well-done, good and faithful servant is coming from the Father. Seven, my only concern will be about pleasing the Father and seeking his honor, not what the world says about me, not what my friends or my wife or my kids or anyone else thinks about me but only as a, as a father sees me. And I'll be silent before the Father, resting in the sufficiency and potency of his word and trusting that he will defend me. So if we, if we start to put these things into practice, this, these descriptions that Jesus has given us of his relationship with the Father, then we're going to, I believe we will really, really grow 
in our Christian walk. We really um, become more intimate with the Lord if we start focusing on these things. We can be set free from our own agendas, our own vision, our own even ministry, our own uh, sin, all those things, and we can live for the Father and for Him only and enjoy those tremendous blessings that come from doing that. We can bless Him, we can be blessed as we do it. Father, I just thank You, Lord, for this um, these tremendous truths, and I just pray that You will continue to inspire us to live for You, Lord, to work with You, Lord, to, to look at what you're doing and see what you're doing, to, to take the time out to actually spend time in your word and, and prayer, dedicated time with you, quality time with you each and every day so we can see, like Jesus got up early every morning, same as we. We need to get up at the start of each day and just ask you, Lord, what are you doing today? What work are you doing? I want to join you in your work. Show me. And Lord, we need to humble ourselves, we need to submit ourselves to you. And I just pray that as we do these things, Lord, that uh, we will bless you, Father. Lord, it gives me great delight that I can bless you, Lord. I bring you great pleasure, just like I can bring my wife great pleasure when we walk in unity. And I just pray that you'll help me and the others and every Christian, Lord, who's following you, to not hurt you, to not grieve you, and to remember that when we do do things our own way, we are grieving you. We are hurting you badly, Lord. So help us to keep that in mind and to remember that we should be grateful for all the good things you've done for us. And that should cause us to not want to hurt you, but rather to bless you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.